This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic, either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy. Pub after the day one meeting, that's sort of how we sort of talked about how this should go, that this should be like our faculty getting together after the first day of the meeting at the pub. We got our beers, wines, and actually it's like bottle, water bottles and stuff like that. Uh, that's the best we can come up with on short notice. But we want to give you what we thought was uh, some of the highlights of the day. Uh, and let's start with the faculty. I'm Jack Cush in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Mike. I'm Mike Putman from Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin. Trish. I'm Dr. Trish Harkins from Dublin, Ireland. Rachel. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida. And Eric. Hi, Eric Dian from New Jersey. Okay, so ground rules are there are no ground rules. Uh, we're going to sort of go around the horn and, you know, what what you, did you think was uh, uh, important? And so um, let's start with, who did I say I was going to start with? Uh, Eric, there you go. Yes, uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit. I, I spent um, a bunch of time trying to find all the posters, which are all virtual this year. So um, I'm going to talk about a couple posters today. The first is abstract. 0344. Uh, and this is looking at hydroxychloroquine uh, blood levels and, and different predictors for, um, for measuring those. And so I, I think hydroxychloroquine blood levels can be really useful in clinical practice, but I don't always know what are the things that, that drive it up or down. And so this one did a really good job of uh, all sorts of data uh, that you can use as a reference. And one, one thing before I say that is it, it really does make a difference in clinical care. So if you go above 750 nanograms per, per milliliter um, or then above 1,000, each time you go up, you have a 75% decrease in flare risk, according to their study. Uh, what are some of the, the things that affect it? If you're CKD stage two or above, you have 150 um, nanograms per milliliter uh, higher than if you're on the same dose of CKD one or less. Um, the the increase from 200 of, uh, milligrams of, of hydroxychloroquine per day up to uh, 400 brings you up almost 500. Uh, and if you increase your body weight by 15 grams, it decreases um, the hydroxychloroquine levels by 82 uh, for each increase of, of 15 kilograms. So uh, using all of these things, uh, when we're seeing the patients, we're thinking about their body size, we're thinking about um, their kidney function, uh, but it's always hard to know exactly how much does that affect what their dose is. And as we're trying to get them for that optimal level, which I generally go from between 1000 to 1500. Uh, so I, I think this is very useful for clinical practice in, in helping have that in the back of your mind. What was the cohort? I mean, how, that was that they were analyzing. They, how, they just analyzed people prospectively as far as their, their levels? Yeah, so it was um, in, a, in a lupus center uh, and they were checking blood levels on all the patients. Uh, and I'd have to take a look back to see if it, if it was prospective or if it was just a retrospective review of their data, okay. uh, but looking at the patient characteristics with the with the corresponding levels. I can remember almost 10 years ago, Michelle Petrie presenting this data at ULAR, I think it was in Spain, uh, and it seemed like just a, a little bit of a tool to tell whether patients were being compliant or not, and it's turned into a whole lot more than that, including oh efficacy, including antithrombotic effects and and whatnot. Any other uh, views on this? Do any of you do this in your practice? I, no, I have, oh yeah. no, go, Mike. I have strong views on this, and I don't do it. I, 
I, I'm, I'm skeptical because I think that a couple things can happen that I don't want. The first is that you go down on the hydroxychloroquine dose. And I really think that we're inappropriately reducing hydroxychloroquine doses for our patients with lupus. And then the second is that you have an uncomfortable, perhaps off-putting conversation with someone about how they're not adherent. And I'm in it for the long game. And any conversation that results in a patient not wanting to come back to see me, I think is a net negative. So I think it could be used well. I think it's probably effective, but I think there's some pitfalls here we need to be careful with. Yeah, Rachel, what do you think? I mean, I, I kind of agree with Mike, but I also think it opens it up for discussion for a patient, right? If you do have a patient who is not taking their drug, this is a way to kind of validate that in the sense of saying, look, I get it. Sometimes it's hard to stay on a medication um, for numerous reasons, but this is also why it's important. That's kind of the flip side of the coin, as Mike said. Yeah. Or even for them to open up as to why they're not taking the medication. And if you could do something about it, it might even just open up that conversation. Yeah, absolutely, Rachel. Well, we we need a, do need a way to deal with the horrendous problem of non-adherence to hydroxychloroquine, especially in lupus. And this is but one tool. And I think that Michelle would say um, you're more likely to go up on drug dosing. And I think she sides with you, Mike, and that we tend to underdose because of all the eye concerns and whatnot, hydroxychloroquine. I think you tend to increase your dosing here uh, and not necessarily with the belief that it's all non-adherence. I just think that finding the optimal dose, but it clearly needs to be studied better and used more widely until we really know. Eric, do you do it in your practice? I, I do it uh, often. I do it for pretty much all my patients on it. And I think it opens up a conversation uh, and, and I kind of work into the adherence talk. I say it's because of all these other things that I can mention here, your kidney disease, your, your body weight, and I want to make sure you're on the right dose. And then I come back and say, as a byproduct, while I was doing that, it also shows that your level was low and we need to have a conversation about how, how you're taking it. Yeah, the good um, news is think, it's commercially available, I think, in a lot of places now. So, it, you know, we need a little more experience before we can really have a knockdown drag out about this, you know. So, Rachel, what's your next uh, big highlight for the day? Ah, uh, well, I told you I was going to do something different, but I changed my mind. There are a lot of good stuff today, actually. So I'm actually going to talk to you about um, abstract 374, which is a BASDI index during pregnancy, to make this short enough for everybody this was a study group of 50 patients who had AS compared to um, age-related norm, normal patients of healthy pregnancies. At It's a small study, but what they did, they actually did BASDI on each of these patients um, in the first trimester, second trimester, and third trimester. And actually what they found is kind of interesting. So only morning stiffness actually classified patients who have AS with disease activity that was of any value in terms of the area under the curve during pregnancy. They found the back pain, fatigue, especially in the second half of pregnancy. And then of course the BASDI itself in the third trimester completely were insufficient for monitoring our AS patients. And why I think this is really interesting is because it opens up this conversation that we've been talking about for the past few years, which is does the BASDI, you know, these validated measures that we have from the 1990s that were originally historically um, used in, in a, a Caucasian male population, do they actually affect change and do they actually tell us about disease activity in women? And I think it's an interesting, um, an interesting dynamic to actually look at it during pregnancy as well when patients are having some of these symptoms regardless of their disease. So 
our team um, really thought this was interesting in terms of the AS group, but I, I find that it's an area of unmet need. And that's why I'm, I'm classifying it as my highlight for today. So is this important because you're a bit of a spa geek? And I mean, and, and the rest of us don't really do baz dyes. What do you think? I mean, considering I'm talking to like my vasculitis and lupus cohort right here, I think there's been an unmet need, right? I mean, psoriatic arthritis is psoriatic disease, AS, spondylitis. We have a lot of changes that have been gone going on within the past few years. Non-radiographic versus radiographic. What do these mean? And I just think it's an area that we personally like to study and that we want to be um, more knowledgeable about. So I think it's an educational deficit. You know, the, I, I can't say I do the best. I have in clinical trials. Um, what I have always been encouraged by, and I don't know if any of you do this, but the recent years have shown that spondylitis patients actually can be well followed with a rapid three. Yes. Which is certainly a lot simpler um, and maybe as revealing. And But I do think, I do think it's important to do this in spondylitis patients, something, and, and maybe even more so when they're pregnant, because then you I mean, you have to deal with spa activity versus, you know, what pregnancy brings to bear on the patient. Um, I think following patients closely in a quantitative and qualitative way makes a, a, for better care. Anybody else have any views on this? I, I thought that was a great uh, poster that I, I did a video on that as well. Um, I, I think it's um, very useful because I, I think there's a lot of um, you know, disparity in, in recognizing ankylosing spondylitis in, in women to begin with, and I think especially studying it during pregnancy. And regardless if you if you use the BASDI or not, I think the components are, are very helpful. Um, I, I have pregnant patients that come to mind right now that have, you know, there's all the mechanical changes. You have back pain, you feel fatigued when you're pregnant, and uh, really parsing out what are the questions within the BASDI to ask, I think is very useful for practice. Okay, great. Mike. What do you have? Yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, an interesting study. This is abstract uh, 0352 uh, that was published or, um, from uh, Dr. Petrie's group. She's got her second shout out for this uh, hub session. Uh, and this is an interesting study. And I want to share it because for one, it's something I wish we did more of. We're, I'm, we're seeing a lot of these now, but it's a, it's a conglomeration of prior trials in, lupus, in, in using Benlista, Belimumab, the bliss inhibitor. Uh, it's called the effect of Belimumab on kidney outcomes in SLE, results of a large integrated analysis. And so what they did is they said, you know, we have a lot of trials that looked at Belimumab or Benlista, and they said, let's look at all that data together. We'll have more power, we might be able to find some new things we hadn't seen before, and we'll be able to parse it into some more interesting uh, patient groups. So, you know, there's differences between these trials. Some of them had lupus nephritis, some of them did not. Uh, there are some other subtle differences between the patients that, that came into it. But at the end of the day, you can say, you know, we have this large group of people who got this drug and, and what happened to them. And the thing that I thought was most striking, you know, it's not terribly surprising that people who had lupus nephritis at baseline got better because we already have read the Bliss lupus nephritis trial that showed that there were some improvements in GFR. Um, but what I thought was really interesting was that they looked at the people who didn't have lupus nephritis at baseline and they looked into worsening. Um, on uh, biolag scores and um, using the kidney function. And what they saw is that from week zero to week 52, uh, people who had normal um, uh, protein creatinine at baseline went up a little bit. 
if they're on standard therapy as opposed to uh, Benlista. And so to me, this suggests that uh, among people who uh, do not have lupus nephritis or lupus involvement at baseline, there may be some protective effect for, from belimumab. Now, the interesting thing is that had this been observational data, I would have said, well, of course, it's confounded by indication. Or, you know, this is just a subset of people who can are connected enough to get Benlista, but this is a randomized controlled trial. And so I think that it's a really interesting approach and kind of an interesting question. I thought it was a, it was a good abstract. So, Mike, you're a methodology guy, and um, and uh, do you think this is the best case scenario as far as post hoc analyses go? And you know, I, I think one of the strengths, but really one of the weaknesses, honestly, is that a good study happens, like the best study or the maximized study, and it comes out, and you, it's really great as it is. But the companies try to get more uh, more bang for its buck out of the study, and they just slice and dice it to the point that it can make almost any tune from that. And it be, the further away from the original trial and its design you get, the more meaningless the, the interpretation. So here you are, you know, taking multiple studies and putting them together and coming up with an outcome. Does this kind of analysis suffer from those faults or not? Uh, I mean, certainly, and I'll be the first to complain about it. I will also be the first to present two post hoc analyses on this little pub session that we're doing here. So I guess I'm uh, moderately hypocritical toward myself. I mean, I think the data is interesting and good in, in, in and of itself. I think that randomized data is better than observational data. Absolutely. If we have enough of it and if the patients are representative and if there's no shenanigans. And uh, anytime we can get a little more juice out of an RCT, I, I actually tend to like it. I think there's a risk in over-interpreting it. But man, the, the vitamin D study that we had, there have been a bunch of really interesting post hoc analyses that I think were really useful. And so uh, I'm, I'm pro additional analyses of randomized controlled trials, as long as you're not being too, too shady about it. Okay. I'm coming to you for shenanigans. <laughs> Patricia. Yeah, so I'm going to discuss uh, abstract 0478. Uh, so this was from Dr. Kirby and his colleagues. So they were looking for subclinical GCA in patients with PMR. Um, so it was quite a small study. They had 25 patients. And what they did was for all newly diagnosed PMR patients, they did a temporal artery ultrasound and an auxiliary artery ultrasound. And they found that 20% of patients, which was actually five patients, did have evidence of subclinical GCA. Um, and all five had evidence of GCA in their temporal arteries and one in their axillary artery. And I suppose the thing to note was that on their one year follow up, all five of them had actually developed clinical GCA. Um, so I suppose this abstract, obviously, you know, we need a bigger study, et cetera, but I, it made me think. So I have two questions and I'd actually be very interested on the panel's um, opinions on these. So should we be screening all PMR patients for GCA, even if they don't have symptoms or signs of it? And number two, if we do find that they have subclinical GCA, should we be treating them as GCA or should we be treating them as PMR? Wow. I think they were the two things that I got from it anyway. Um, I'll open it up to you guys before I give my opinion on it, maybe. I'm going to turn the show off at this point and leave everybody hanging with those two great questions. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I want to, uh, I think Mike's our vasculitis maven on this show. And um, Mike, what I learned is that 50% uh, of uh, 
GCA patients have PMR symptoms and that if you did uh, temporary biopsies on all PMRs, maybe 15% would be positive. So this number that uh, Trish comes up with here based on ultrasound, 20% is kind of close to that. Do you think mm -hmm. this is true? Yeah, I think- We're gonna get to questions in a second, but well, do you think that yeah. the numbers are in fact true? I, I am sure that there is subclinical GCA among patients with PMR and we've all found them. You know, a couple of months later, it becomes clear. I am sure that we would have found some at baseline if we screened for it. And that gets to Trisha's questions, which are the are, are really are the best questions. Should we treat this? And in my opinion, is this gonna be over diagnosis? Because a lot of these people right now get 15 milligrams of steroid, they get tapered off and they do just fine. Putting them on 60 milligrams and some Actemra biologic and um, doing all this aggressive workup may be to the detriment to some group of these patients. We just don't know. It's a very good question. Yeah. All right. So the two questions again were, should we treat them? And the first one was Trish, what? So should we be screening all our PMR patients? Like if they don't have signs, if they don't have symptoms of GCA, should we be screening them? Yeah, I don't like going looking for trouble. I don't like trolling for p-values. I don't like, so um, no, I I think that you, I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I need to know the answer to the question before I ask the question. Otherwise, it, you don't know what you're going to get. And you might get results that you, like Mike suggested, you potentially could be over-treating here. Um, I, in spite of the fact, I, I, like Mike said, I, I do see people who have evolved into GCA it's not 20%. It's in, in my practice, but then again, I'm not, I'm not looking for it. So uh, if I was doing as Trish says, and I looked harder, would I convince myself? And then would I treat them? Uh, Eric and Rachel, what do you do? I mean, I'm pro ultrasound. So from an esoteric standpoint, I want to be looking further screening these patients, but I don't know that I treat a patient if it's not clinically active disease period across the board. So I, I don't know that this changes the way I deal with this in clinic. Eric, what do you do? I, I educate them on the symptoms of GCA. I remind them every single time I, I see them and I, I harp on that. Um, I have a, a patient right now I'm treating with very refractory PMR that is very difficult to treat. Inflammatory markers are much higher than I would expect. And, and for that patient, I'm, I'm looking for GCA, but for the typical patient, um, I tell them the warning signs and we go over it and, and we go clinically. So Trish, what, what has this study told you or taught you that you may do different going forward? I'm actually opposite to you guys. I'm like pay, playing the devil's advocate. But I suppose for me, like Rachel, like to do a temporal artery ultrasound or an auxiliary artery ultrasound in experienced hands takes five, 10 minutes tops. Um, and I do think like, I know this is a small study, but all five developed clinical GCA. So say if this is six months down the road, they're six months into their PMR therapy. And now suddenly we're going back to square one, we're treating them for GCA. Like, are we over-treating then? Or not over-treating, but like their cumulative steroid dose is going to increase. And God forbid they present with the complication of visual loss and we've known, but then that's back to, I'm screening them to find it out. Um, but I definitely think the screening part, I think, you know, five, 10 minutes in clinic, um, we can easily do it. Okay. All right. So, so my quick, kind of with me. <laughs> my, uh, abstract is, uh, abstract zero five, three, three. This is, this is a spit study. 
um, sputum antibodies against CCP in patients at risk for developing RA. So clinically uh, uh, suspect arthralgias, at-risk individuals. This was a study of, 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 of patients who were um, at risk only by having CCP. They did not have, have to have, I think, even any symptoms here. And um, so this comes from uh, Mike Holler's group in Denver, uh, where they've done, uh, and, and Kevin Dean, they do a lot of work on uh, preclinical RA and at-risk individuals. Um, Mike, a number of years ago, did this interesting study of, I think it was first-degree relatives who were CCP positive, and they did um, alveolar lavage on them, and they found not only autoantibodies in at-risk individuals, but they also found evidence of inflammatory airway disease based on, I guess, BAL fluid and, and whatnot, suggesting even though they were totally asymptomatic, that that the preclinical state can also begin in the lung, not just um, serologically um, in, in the circulation. And so this is an extension of that study. And, uh, and, and it kind of goes to one of the theories or hypotheses that I think that that group is promoting that this preclinical RA is a mucosal um, uh, sort of driven process with microbiome changes and mucosal surfaces being the interface between um, uh, an inactive and then active immune system that um, leads to an autoimmune state that may progress. So the bottom line was that they found antibodies in in at-risk individuals, not just, and that that that's sort of what's interesting here. Does it change, you know, anything I'm doing? No. They correctly point out that the patients who are just CC positive, the odds are very much against them developing RA. Developing RA then becomes a cascade effect if you're a first degree relative, if you have tenosynovitis, if you have high titer CCP, if you have double positivity, if you're a smoker, and now if you have sputum spit antibodies, you know, uh, you're, you're, you, the clinician, gets to worry a little bit more. So I like the story that's being built that kind of sequentially adds on. Um, I still think we can now argue about some of the preclinical intervention trials at this meeting. Um, stop RA, a negative study with hydroxychloroquine, or the ARIA study, a positive study with abatacept, but that's another pub discussion. So in our last lightning round, we're going to go around once around the horn, and I'm going to get quickies from everyone because this is going on too long and we have to get our second round of, of beers here at the pub. So again, Eric, give us your quickie. Yes. So uh, very quick, uh, spy you not a university, it's uh, a study looking at uh, spinal arthritis and uveitis. Uh, what are the, they put together a calculator for, can you predict severity for the uveitis in this patient population? So things that are more severe, smoking, axial and peripheral involvement, uh, a high BASDI, HLA-B27 positivity, female sex, elevated CRP, and a history of bilateral ocular involvement. Um, we can get to um, Mike's thoughts tomorrow on, on they also included low vitamin D there as well. Cool. Rachel. So very quickly, abstract 89, which was looking at psoriatic arthritis trials and then expanded, but it showed that black study subjects remain underrepresented in rheumatology clinical trials with one exception in gout trials. So my urge to you guys is let's do better at patient recruitment. And also maybe we can better define disease states as it relates to other populations. Interesting. 
Mike. Mm -hmm. I will very briefly parse another trial. So this was the uh, abstract 0526 from the PEXAVAS trial, which was a factorial randomized trial of either steroids a little bit or a lot or plasma exchange, yes or no. And uh, the interpretation of the PEXAVAS trial was that it was a negative trial. You should do low-dose steroids and plasma exchange doesn't necessarily have a role in vasculitis. Now, the flip side is that if you read that trial, you'll notice that not that many people in the trial had diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, 27% um, overall, and only a fraction of that was severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. We have been clamoring for that data and now we have it. And the interpretation in today's abstract was that there was no significant difference. And they're correct. The hazard ratio was something like 0.4, Five, but it crossed 1.14 to 1.40. And so they said there's no significant benefit. But man, if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve, there is a wide divergent between, divergence between those curves. And it really looks like the people who had severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage benefited from plasma exchange. The hazard ratio confidence intervals crossed one, but man, that hazard ratio is 0.4 something. I want that for my patients with severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, and I am coming off the anti-plex bandwagon, and I am bringing it back. And to be fair, I never really left, let it go because I've always been suspicious that we didn't know enough about that cohort. Uh, the the Pexiva study was a fairly large study, wasn't it? Like two hundred or something like that. Seven hundred four. Wow. Yeah. So I can't can't blame sample size on on um, significance there, but. I think any rheumatologist with a conscience who's dealing with vasculitis and alveolar hemorrhage is dialing up that that plasma exchange because bad outcomes there, right? So, I all right. I think any rheumatologist with a, a laser pointer, you can fit it between those Kaplan-Meier curves so you know that there could be a benefit there. <laughs> there you go. All right, Trish, you're going to cap the show. Yeah, so very, very briefly, abstract 0447. So they were looking at the use of beta blockers in reducing the risk of aortic dilatation in patients with GCA-related large vessel vasculitis. So it was basically a retrospective study. Um, they had 65 consecutive patients. Uh, 15 of those, so 23%, were on beta blockers, and the remaining 50 patients weren't. So what they did was they compared the patient's first imaging with their last imaging and looked for any evidence of new aortic dilatation. And what they found was 15 patients, so 23%, had evidence of new aortic dilatation. But the key thing was none of those patients were on beta blockers. So in other words, everyone who was on beta blockers in that study population didn't develop new aortic dilatation. And they'd also done vascular scores in these patients before. And it wasn't that the vascular score was higher in the patients that did develop aortic dilatation. So even though it's retrospective and it's small, I do think it's given us a little bit of food for thought. Maybe the addition of a beta blocker in addition to our conventional management to reduce the risk of aortic dilatation. So do we think that this effect is all driven by antihypertensive benefits? It's very hard. Yeah. Like I think it's, I suppose it just gives us food for thought, but absolutely it'll need to be studied prospectively, larger numbers, et cetera. But I just thought it was quite an interesting study. And I know it's something that we all worry about. And I suppose we're not too clear on how best to attenuate the complications of large vessel GCA. So uh, for that reason, it caught my attention. I'm still I'm wondering about this. Did they go into the study knowing that 
there's a question of whether or not to use beta blockers or did in doing the study and looking at who developed dilation of the aortic root did they then see this divergence of whether you use so did they find it sort of retrospectively by accident or did they go in looking to analyze uh, find this uh, answer this question yeah i'm actually not too sure enough but i would say it was retrospectively found would be my yeah. <laughs> um, interpretation of it um but yeah i still thought it was quite interesting though very very much so all right this is very informative great first day recap by a great faculty i want to ask everybody are you um what do you think of today was it uh, a great meeting uh give me your score of the meeting um, zero to 10. Zero is the worst meeting ever. 10 is the best. Best Again, we're all back and, and loving seeing each other. Lots of, of smiles and hugs. But how was your first day, Eric? Zero to 10. I'll go with the seven. It was, it's great to be back. It, it, I, I miss the poster halls. I think it'd be great to actually see the posters. And it's a little hard to rely on the internet. That's a little spotty sometimes. But seeing everyone definitely brings it way up. Rachel? I would have gone six. Uh, solid being back, but that unit is driving me nuts. Yeah, Patricia, you're you're doing virtual. What do you think? Yeah, so virtually brings me down to six. Yeah, I've I I'm so jealous of everyone who's over there. The virtual platform is great, but yeah, it doesn't replace being there. So ACR twenty three, I'll definitely be there. I want you to know, Mike Putnam was all over the convention center today, so he will know the final number, the final answer. Mike, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to give it a seven so we can split the difference. A nice 6.5 average. We're all correct. Um, I think it's a 10 for seeing colleagues and uh, being in person again. It's just a joy. Uh, it's like a four uh, as far as the tech stuff, the community hubs. I want to see people in person. It's kind of weird signing on to things. So I think that there's some tweaks they can do next year to make it better. Um, four and 10 also averages out to seven. So I nailed it. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of little things that were disappointing, but we haven't been together in a long time. And I don't know if you've traveled recently. The airlines are not getting a seven or a six, you know, um, they're struggling too. So return to normal is going to be a little bit of a slow path for all of us, but we're enjoying it. Thanks very much for your time tonight. Bye-bye. Thanks guys. Bye-bye. Hello everyone. My name is Michelle Petrie. I'm from Johns Hopkins. And today for Room Now, I want to discuss how much we need new treatments for SLE. In particular, we need them for the very common non-renal lupus manifestations. And I wanted to emphasize how much we need new treatments for joints. Because in every single clinic, I'm giving triamcinolone injections for joint flares. I think many of you know that I don't ever increase oral prednisone because I'm too worried about long-term steroid side effects, but I do give triamcinolone 100 milligrams IM for non-renal flares. So I wanted to discuss this abstract. It's abstract 1117 to show the, the hope, but also the potential pitfalls as new medications are developed for lupus. And this abstract is about ducrovacetitinib. You know, I think we should limit everything to four syllables, which is an allosteric TIC2 inhibitor. This is not the first time you've heard about it. It was also presented at ULAR. So where are we now for skin and joints? 
For skin, of course, we're going to start out with hydroxychloroquine, and then we're going to add methotrexate, mycophenolate, or azathioprine. If it's discoid lupus, you know, our dermatology colleagues may consider drugs in the thalidomide family. And then when we turn to biologics, we have two choices, bulimumab or anaphrolimab. For joints, again, we start out with hydroxychloroquine, then we add methotrexate or azathioprine. We try very hard not to give anti-TNF unless it's a rupus, a true overlap, because we're so concerned about anti-TNFs not just causing lupus, but increasing lupus antibodies like antiphospholipid and anti-DNA. And then for biologics, we have bulimumab, although many of us use other things off-label, don't we? So what might the TIC2 inhibitor add? Well, you know, many early studies, you know, think of them like phase one, some of them were investigator-initiated, showed benefit of JAK inhibitors. So then what happened with baricitinib was very disappointing because in the phase two trial, it did show benefit for joints, but only one of the two phase threes had positive results, you know, it was for joints. But in particular, a TIC2 inhibitor might be safer than a JAK inhibitor because we don't like the JAK inhibitor boxed warnings in our lupus patients because lupus patients already have a propensity for those problems like thrombosis and malignancy. So I wanted to show you this summary of the key efficacy results, but then I'm going to hone down on some of the things I want you to see because they're super important as we compare and contrast lupus trials going forward. So this trial is quite complete in terms of its presenting all the important outcome measures. And, you know, at a first look here, you're going to say, oh, this is a nicely positive trial. But I, I want you to think more carefully about what the results actually might mean. So first of all, they do show the results for individual organs. And I think that's key. And I think we should require that of all lupus trials. But do you see the big surprise? What organ is this good for? It's pretty obvious it's skin, isn't it? Because that's what the classy result is all about. Look at that delta for classy. Like this is an oh my God moment in lupus. Now look at the active joint count. You can see, of course, there's a problem. The lower dose worked better. It isn't that it evened off, right? The higher doses worked less well. And in fact, that medium dose, you know, only has a 7% delta versus the standard of care. That's not very impressive, you know, even given the fact that many lupus trials are not that impressive. So uh, up kind of like a problem, right? This is not going to be your go-to joint drug if these kinds of results held up in phase three. Now, I'm very glad they put in LLDAS. You know that lupus low disease activity measure is my favorite outcome measure in the clinic because it requires that the disease activity be low and the prednisone be below 7.5. So you can see that about 36% of patients achieve this wonderful goal. But now again, remember how concerned I am by that drop-off that patients did much less well on the higher doses. So, you know, a concern. Now let's look at SRI. Now, why look at SRI and, you know, not look at Biclo? Well, of course, I don't mind if you look at both. 
But the advantage of the SRI is the only way to lose points on the SLE day is by that manifestation resolving. So this doesn't look at partial improvement. This looks at what I'm going to say is a very meaningful improvement. And you see that there is a very nice delta with a low dose. Now, the, the, the medium and, and, and the third dose are really the same, aren't they? Six BID and 12 once a day. So we're not surprised that those two give the same answer. But you see, of course, it's less. And if we take that 44.9 for the 12 once a day, you know, there's only a 10% delta versus the standard of care. And I think we are looking for more than that in lupus trials. Now, one problem this has is that it appears to be a skin drug, and skin only gets two points on the sleet A. Joints get four. So that hurt this in the SRI analysis. Remember, I still think it's very impressive for skin. Now let's think about adverse events, because remember that was one of the themes for today. The JAK inhibitors have adverse events that are seriously unwanted in lupus. But in the baricitinib phase two and phase threes, you know, there wasn't a signal for thrombosis and they did let antiphospholipid positive patients in. So at least that particular worry was never realized in the clinical trial setting. But now all you have to do is look at the last three on this uh, uh, on this table. So you see there's no signal for malignancy, atherosclerotic cardiovascular events, or thrombosis. So that's all very good news because, you know, we need more skin drugs. This would be an easy thing to give, right? Because it's got an adverse event profile that I think you and your patients are going to be very willing to tolerate. So where have we come in this whirlwind tour of TIC1 versus JAK inhibitors? The TIC2 inhibitor is promising for skin. If this holds up in phase three, this would be a very welcome addition. Now, this is not the first RCT in lupus to fail to show a nice dose response, meaning that the higher doses work better, but you know, maybe theoretically higher doses would have more toxicity. What on earth does this mean? Well, I think it means that when you give a higher dose, other immune pathways kick in that then negate some of the benefit. And I think this should worry everybody because you got to be so sure that you pick the right dose because there is what I'm going to call a narrow therapeutic window before you start to lose the benefit. Now, phase two success does not guarantee phase three success in lupus. We've seen that so many times. Why? Well, I think part of the problem is when you get to phase three, the companies have to recruit many more sites. And some of those sites may not be facile with the physical exam that's necessary for lupus or for completing the instruments. I mean, come on, guys, it's a multi-organ disease. It's often hard for me to correctly uh, assess it when I'm in the clinic. So some of the problems that might occur in joints is, you know, I don't care about the total joint count. 
I only care about the joints that are typically involved in lupus. You know, when you look at the person's hand, you want to see the valleys between the second and third MCPs. We know in the ultrasound studies, those are the joints that are involved in lupus. I don't want to hear what's happening in the knees, for example. That's usually going to be something else like osteoarthritis or AVN or even fibromyalgia tender points. So I really care that we change our trial designs and I'm an advocate for an MRI rather than let the physician mess things up. Now, how could we have problems with skin? Well, if the lesion is old and scarred, like many discoid lesions are, it can be sometimes confuse. So I would like to have photographs adjudicated. But so far, I haven't been successful in changing the study designs of lupus clinical trials. But I just wanted you to understand the pitfalls and why even though this seems to be so exquisitely positive for skin, we still need to see the phase three results. I want to thank you all for listening. I want to remind you that Room Now is there at the ACR, always there for you. Room Now is where all the action is. Thank you.